The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where we work hard every week to give you the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. Today's show is maybe the most important show we're going to do this year, because this is the show where we're going to stop talking amongst ourselves at RIA meetings about the multiple and increasing infractions upon our private property rights and put it out on the table and talk about what's going on, why it's going on, and why all of this is likely to have the opposite effect that the folks who are pushing it would claim to uh, mean for it to have, which is it's likely to increase, not decrease, the lack of affordable housing in the United States. My guest today is Roger Valdez. If you haven't heard the name, you haven't been reading uh, Forbes online because he is a blogger for that uh, uh, well-known publication. And that was how I happened to run across him a few weeks ago. And then once I read up on his bio and his uh, what he has to say about property rights, I knew I had to get him as a guest on the show. He's the director of Seattle for Growth. He's worked at the state, regional, and local levels on issues from public education to public health. He was also the neighborhood development manager for the city of Seattle. And uh, was most recently a housing director at a local nonprofit managing and developing affordable housing. And boy, Roger, with that with that resume, I would think you would be all on the bandwagon for rent control and making making housing more affordable for people by by controlling the evil people who provide it. But that isn't the isn't the direction you've taken. No, not at all. We, um, it, it's just the opposite. I think uh, the, the trying to control rent or control prices actually, as you pointed out in your intro, leads to the opposite effect. It, it ends up making things uh, more expensive because it takes the incentive and it, it, it incentive out of building new housing, and it ends up um, limiting choices that people have. Um, and, and driving up prices in the end. And we're going to talk about a bunch of different things that have been happening around the country uh, over the last few years as the show goes on. But uh, I just, uh, just a, a general question for you. Are, are we all being paranoid or is the number of attacks on 
the eviction process and and who's a protected class in fair housing and rent control is is that stuff all accelerating or are we imagining it? No, no, it, it definitely is, and we've seen it here. And um, I've I've heard from in Seattle, and I've heard from folks in Chicago, and of course California, and and really all across the country, we're seeing a, a growing trend of what I would call regulatory overreach, but but basically interfering with the ability for landlords to screen tenants, um, to be able to execute and manage their buildings and and con, you know and conduct their business. And then when there's problems with a lease or problems with a tenant, um, trying to, to move that person um, out of the unit. Um, and, and so all along that continuum of screening someone that's coming in new to exiting them out of the, out of the unit um, is becoming increasingly difficult um, by design from a lot of folks that are advocating for um, or claiming to advocate for tenants and for people that live in rental property. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... It it seems to me that the folks on the other side of that uh, of that movement are fairly well organized. That that this isn't just even though it's happening kind of separately in different cities and different states. It's it, it didn't all start happening at the same time coincidentally. Uh, and the folks on the other side, uh, those of us who provide housing in various forms, are not very well organized. Is that uh, is that mm-hmm. likely? Is that likely to be a big problem in the near future? It it, it really it really is. I mean, we've seen it. Um, I mean, I've been watching this for the last several years, and what what's happening is um, that it's a broad effort amongst um, advocates that within labor unions and 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 tenants unions and. Um, other left-leaning progressive and socialist groups to 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 make these moves to make it more difficult to operate, and 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 I think the real estate community has sort of um, been caught off guard and and a bit uh, and been sort of hasn't hasn't really gotten its footing on this intellectually or or in terms of the politics of it, and and part of the problem is. Um, that it's coming a little bit at a time. It's not like there's a big agenda that's been advanced saying we're going to take away private property. But when you look at the the incremental and kind of um, sporadic and, and here and there approach, um, what we're seeing in state capitals and in, in city halls across the country is small efforts to implement what amounts to rent control and limiting the ability of a landlord to manage their own property and for their own financial benefit. Um, and, and it includes Air, Airbnbs. Um, it includes, um, you know, rental housing, uh, backyard cottages, just an array of different real estate products and, and choices for, for consumers that are being, um, you know, being limited. It's, it's, there are these limits that are going into what you can do with your own private property. Um, and, there's lots of examples, but one of them is is screening tenants. Um, it's become increasingly difficult to to be to screen tenants and to make choices about who gets to move into your rental property, and that is having a, a growing effect across the country. And whether it's vouchers or um, criminal record or credit scores or whatever, um, essentially what we're seeing is a move to say. If somebody shows up at your door and wants to rent your your rental unit, you have to rent to that person. Um, if they show up first 
and um, and, and it, you, you know it doesn't matter whether they can pay the rent or not. You have to you have to let them in. So that's kind of where we're headed um, on the front end, and then on the back end, when you decide, well, I need to sell this property and renovate it and move the people out, or someone breaks their lease or doesn't pay their rent on time or has other issues. Um, there, the plan there is to make it really difficult to do that um, to the point where you may lose two or three months of uh, rental income from that property waiting to move that person out uh, of that unit. So that's kind of what we're seeing on the continuum. And um, it, I don't know that it's a broad effort coming from one particular place, but um, the, the movement that is behind it is this kind of um, – Housing is a right movement. There was a book uh, that came out about evictions um, a while back, uh, and then there was another one uh, uh, about housing commodification. That, that So there's this kind of movement out there to gradually reduce the ability of people that rent property to control what happens inside their own buildings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm I'm pretty convinced that a lot of the folks uh, who who are behind the movement to especially make evictions more difficult and more costly and make sure that every every tenant has a legal aid attorney if they can't afford their own attorney and of course that's being charged to the landlord through the eviction uh, fees and so on. Uh, I'm pretty sure they haven't actually read the book <laughs> because. Because right. I did, <laughs> and I actually, I actually thought it was a fairly even-handed look at at the things that that landlords go through with folks not paying right. and trying to make deals and promising and right. can't, and then their life changes and you know it's it, it that that all seemed very accurate to me from the landlord perspective, but somehow the folks who uh, put together the uh, what we're what we're seeing around here is these forums where they come and discuss the book and then decide no one should be able to evict everybody. Uh, I, I I don't I don't feel like they read the book. I feel like they just think that all evictions are bad and landlords evict people because they don't like them or maybe don't like collecting rent or something something that doesn't make any sense to me. Standing on the yeah. other side. Well, one thing one thing real estate professionals um, and organizations are going to have to do is get better data than the other side. One thing we found here locally in, in Seattle was there was a report that came out that, you know, was dropped in the middle of the legislative process before the, the session started in our, our capital in Washington that basically said, you know, landlords are racist and they're evicting more people of color than anybody else, and this is the leading cause of homelessness. And then when we looked at the data, out of 168,000 rental units in Seattle, there were 1,218 eviction filings, and there were about 600 that actually, you know, resulted in removal or the person leaving the unit. And when you look at that, that's point that the number of filings was 0.7% of all the rental units, and the eviction was 0.3% of all the folks that were living in, in rental units. So that's hardly the leading cause of homelessness, and, and there really isn't any demographic data collected by, the, by a lot of jurisdictions on who's getting evicted. So most of the stuff that they're saying about eviction um, is just false, and I think 
one of the things that that real estate folks are going to have to do um, jurisdiction by jurisdiction is a look at what is actually happening, how many are filed, and what ends up happening. And I think what will be consistent throughout is that it's a very small number because you don't make money from evicting people. It's a costly, difficult process, and it's not pleasant. And most landlords don't want to do it, and most landlords don't. Um, my experience is that, you know, for example, one of our folks is a 14, has 1,400 units, in the year that the tenants organization was looking at uh, evictions, he had exactly zero evictions filed, <laughs> and and others with with similar unit counts, just they just didn't file any because um, they do good screening at the front end. Again, that's part of the eviction prevention um, answer: is you make sure that people are, you know, screened properly and that they can pay the rent and they have deposit and they have a job, et cetera, and that ensures they don't run into problems later on. Um, and as you pointed out, most landlords will do what they can to work with tenants because they don't want to have a vacancy. Mm-hmm. So we found that you know collecting more data that show how many folks are late but then end up paying and staying in the unit um, would be helpful to, to push back on those arguments because elected officials will take this stuff at face value unless you offer them an alternative, um, you know, uh, you know, if you offer them the actual facts, um, it, 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 you, they will. I think it'll help. Um, but the politics are, are very difficult. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, RIA group leaders who happen to be listening to the show right now, uh, you've just been laid down a challenge. You need to. Find out how to gather up the public records in your county and get real numbers to show to city council when they decide that you guys are just, you know, randomly evicting people because you don't like money, I guess. Right. And present present the right numbers. We will do that here in Hamilton County through Cincinnati Rhea, and we will do it in Columbus through Cori. But uh, that's something that you guys yeah, on the ground can, can do. Yeah, and you can just get, you know, if you, you know, if you look at census numbers, the census will tell you you know, the, the number of, of units that are out there. There might be other uh, ways to find, you know, unit counts, but that'll help you get a perspective of just how many filings are happening. And maybe, you know, I've heard that in some jurisdictions there's a lot of them. Um, I think it's wise to, to find that information out and then dig into it and find out what's happening. Yeah, well, you've heard that because I've I've been following that story around the country and in every mm-hmm. single city where I've seen a news article on it, it has said that that city was in the top 5% of evictions in terms of the number of evictions filed, and they can't all be in the top 5%. That's right. They just, they yeah. just can't. No, it, it, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, hi, it's hyperbole. I mean, like this leading cause of homelessness argument um, that was made here, the actual, when they did a count of homeless people, 11% of the folks said they were evicted, which is about, um, you know, some small, smaller number than the 12,000. I think it was, you know, about 1,200 people that, that, that they extrapolated that. But even when they look at the actual number of homeless people and talk to them and do a quantitative analysis of that, only 10% say that eviction was the problem that led them to homelessness. That's hardly the leading cause if 90% of the rest of the folks are, are something else. So you'll find eviction being used as the, you know, as this is the leading cause of, uh, of homelessness, that it's, it's racially motivated. 
and almost always there's no no good data behind that to support the charge. Um, one individual here in, in uh, at, at a university said that they they went through a bunch of data and they went to census tracts and they said, well, if the census tract has 70% African American population and there were X number of evictions, then they said, well, the they were the the, the, the people evicted had to be 70% um, African American. And that's just not, there's no way you can conclude that um, from that data because you just don't, you know, you don't know who actually, they don't collect demographic information. And the media just picked up on that and said, well, one in 11 African Americans um, has been evicted in in the state. And it just was not, just not supportable by the evidence that was offered. But the pre- the press will run with it. And unless you have... Um, information that can counter that or draw questions about it, um, then you'll get legislators and elected officials saying, well, we've got to do something about that. And then you get you start getting the rules and the regulations. So, so good data is one of the big ways to push back on all this. Very good. We need to take a quick break. Going to open up the emails and the phone for questions and comments. 877-772-9658 is our number here in the studio. Uh, if you have input or if you have examples from your own area, if you would like to email them along with a link to whatever house bill, whatever newspaper article you might be referencing, you can do that at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. My guest today is Roger Valdez. He is fighting the good fight fight for property rights in Seattle of all places. Um, those of us in the in the Midwest who you know live in a state that's been had a Republican controlled government for decades, and yet still is considering a law right now that would put such huge limitation on selling properties on contract for deed that no one would do it anymore. And we sit here and say, what are they thinking? Like, do they not want people who can't meet the bank's requirements for getting a loan to just not not get to buy a house? What's going on here? And uh, I can only imagine how, how much more so that might be true uh, in some of the left-leaning uh, states uh, further away from Ohio here. Uh, we're talking today about the various encroachments on property rights that have started to happen. Um, I, I mean, it's 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 been going on for 20 years, but it's like a snowball. Like right now, there's, you know, Airbnb legislation. There's There's rent control being considered at the state level in a lot of places. There's uh, kind of constant white papers coming out of HUD that says, you know, you really shouldn't, you really shouldn't consider somebody's felony conviction when considering whether or not to move them into your multifamily building. And, you know, if somebody, if somebody has a service animal, you, you can't, you can't charge extra and you can't say no. And you can't, and by the way, anybody can have a service animal. They just have to go online and get a letter from a person who sells those (laughs) letters online that says that yes indeed they do need that for medical purposes so 
Um, it's coming from a lot of different directions, and we all sit around at our RIA meetings and talk about it and shake our fists and say, if they just understood that it costs us an average of $2,500 to turn over a unit when it goes vacant, and that's that's a real number, plus we lose two to three months rent, they would understand that we don't want to evict people. We just need to get paid for the service we're providing. But we don't we don't tend to say it to our regulators. We don't send, tend to say it to the public. You know, folks are out folks are out thinking that the cause of the of the quote housing crisis, where people can't afford to buy a house and they can't afford to live in a house, is you know greedy greedy homeowners and banks and landlords and real estate investors. And it just isn't so. If you have a question or comment, you can send it to askvina at gmail.com. You can also call in at 877-772-9658. Roger, let's talk about the so-called housing crisis. It, you know, we had, we had a four-year period there after the real estate crash where you couldn't give away houses. Like, you know, right. banks had banks had tens of thousands on, of them on the market taking price cuts every month nobody nobody was buying and uh, those of us who had rentals at that time were having uh, big vacancy factors because yeah the right. economy was so bad that people were moving in together in the same part we get a lot of we get a lot of applications that it was it's me and my husband and our two kids but also my sister and her kid are going to move in with us because you know between the three of us we have one and a half jobs and this is what we can afford but right. uh, then as the market started to recover, a lot of the rental housing in the country had, had really been, it had been lost in this part of the country to teardowns. The, the state got money from the, many states got money from the robo-signing settlement that was earmarked to tear down older properties. And they did that a lot, especially in low-income neighborhoods. Um, as the market has heated up and it's become uh, a thing to move back into urban areas, a lot of the old rental housing has gone the way of becoming homeowner housing. And so now we hear all this talk about how there's a crisis. There's a crisis and it's being caused by by greed, right? Uh, what is your take on that whole thing? Well, yeah, and it, it's you either believe that that housing uh, prices go up because there's housing scarcity. You know, there's not enough of it. Uh, it's classic just supply and demand when there's a lot of something um, and not very many people want it, um, the price goes down. And when there's a lot, uh, not a lot of something and a lot of people want it, the price goes up. And so if we believe price and we believe the price system is a real thing, you know, when something gets more expensive or drops in price, it, tell, it sends us a message about supply and demand, then when prices for housing goes up, go up, it tells us that we need more housing. Um, but if you don't believe that, um, then price becomes a measure of, of greed. And, and anybody that has built or developed housing or managed housing knows that you, you just can't you can't just dictate what the price is going to be. The, the, there's a relationship between what people will pay and what you can actually ex- ask them to pay, <laughs> because if they, <laughs> they can't pay that, they're going to go somewhere else, right? And so I, what I have found is that there really isn't, when I ask elected officials, well, when did the housing crisis start? They usually don't have an answer. And then they say, well, how do we know when it's over? if we don't know when it started and we don't have a quantitative measure for it. 
Um, you know, when we have a recession, it's usually two quarters of negative um, growth of GDP. And you can kind of go back and look and say, well, it started in the first quarter of 2000 and whatever. When they talk about the housing crisis, it's usually quarter over quarter or year over year rent increases. And there's no baseline on what that should be, no comparison to inflation. It's just sort of, oh, my God, rent went up X percent over Y period. We're in a crisis. And that, to me, just isn't a good way to make public policy, um, first of all. And then second of all, if people aren't happy about prices, then that tells you you need to bring more housing online. And um, that's the exact opposite of what would happen with a lot of these rules is a lot of people will just get out of the rental housing business, um, sell their properties, um, and do something else. So that's that, that's where I think the country is going in terms of this use of this word crisis. And again, I think the more that we can push back and say, tell me when this crisis began and how do you measure it and how do we know when it's over? Um, you know, that, that, that I think really stops people in their tracks because it forces them to go back and say, well, what is it that we're really worried about here? And if it's price, um, then you have to look at more supply. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, a, a, an area in real estate that is about to show us that you are correct is uh, high-end apartments. There, it's, right. pre- it's pretty well agreed that there's been overbuilding at this point of, of brand new high-end apartment units. And the sign of that that we see on the street is that uh, the complexes that a year ago were full now have signs out front that say, first month, move in special, free deposit, $50 right. first month. And it's because there's now too many of those and not enough of the uh, kind of properties that we'd all like to be, see being built, which is uh, you know the more the more affordable bread and butter type uh, housing. And uh, I'm one, I always wonder when I see these things that say you know rents have increased 13 percent in two years, if if those numbers are actually being gathered uh, just across the board because everything that has been yeah. built in rental housing in the neck in the last five years has been. Hundred dollar a square foot a month, you know, high <laughs> end mm-hmm. units. That's, yes, that's that's exactly right, and that's and so once you get into this conversation with, well, when did the crisis start? And then someone will say, oh, but look, you know, price has gone up thirteen percent over whatever period. Um, then then you have to look at, well, tell me more about the the what the product is that has gone up, and what you'll see is what we call um, the skew of the new. So. All newer products, whether it's a sweater or a pair of shoes or an apartment, is going to be more expensive in new construction. And when you look at the the newspaper reports, and they'll they'll breathlessly report a percentage over you know X percent over Y period. They don't usually tell you. They, they don't break it down by new versus existing. They don't break it down by two, one, and studio. It's just all of the units over that whole period. And immediately, you have to be suspicious of those numbers because, as you're pointing out, it really does matter if you're talking about two new two-bedroom apartments in a expensive area where the land is expensive, you know, right downtown or something. 
that's going to drive up that average. So you, you have to go back into it and, and look at what you're talking about. And usually when you do that, you find that it is a, a tremendous skew. And if you remove the new apartments, the average increase is probably about inflation. So again, there's a lot of hype about this. And I've, I've concluded that, um, and it's not that hard to conclude, that it's a power grab. It's really an effort to use the you know, the discomfort people feel with the change going on with a lot of growth and construction and jobs um, to say, we've been left out, you need to give us more money because, look, we have a housing crisis. And when you really look at the numbers, um, it, it's just not really uh, – there, there's no measure of it that shows that it's a crisis. Um, and that that crisis talk tends to fuel the bad policies that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. One of the questions that I think a lot of a lot of uh, people have asked themselves over over particularly the last five years as uh, housing prices for homeowners have they, they've gone way up and I I, I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir because I think Seattle actually has the highest median host, uh, home price of any area in the United States right now but the the question that folks keep asking is where are the builders the it, it, the reason that house prices crashed in 2006 and 2007 is that there was a lot of overbuilding in sort of the bread and butter price ranges there were entire subdivisions in in Las Vegas and Atlanta and Phoenix that had been completed and no one was living there cuz there were more houses than there were people those have all been absorbed, but we could use some more houses now. Where where are the builders when when a you know when the median sale price in a city is is seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars? Why are they not building more houses? Well, that, that's that's the good question and or the right question, and and the, the answer is that we're getting more regulation that makes it harder um, and more difficult to build those those houses. So, in places like Seattle. Um, we saw the city council um, eliminate small lot development, you know, so infill single-family development. Um, and then we saw uh, an elimination of micro-housing, you know, and the size of units went up and prices went up with it. And then just generally it's just difficult, you know, with materials and labor, are, are the price for those things are going up. And then the amount of permitting uh, and permitting cost the length of time to deliver the product is going up as well. So you're not seeing production keeping up with uh, with the demand, and so that's why you see those prices. Um, but, but you're right, um, those things will go down, and we've seen a softening of the market as, you know, things kind of uh, cooled off a bit. But, you know, it's when the government intervenes and doesn't let production happen, then you see prices go up, and you've got more people looking for fewer units, which means the existing units and the existing uh, single-family homes are going to get more expensive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's some, there is, a, again, some bank regulation involved in this, too. I discovered recently that part of the, the big uh, overhaul of the banking system that came from the federal government included a requirement that... Um, banks basically make builders put 50% down when they're developing uh, an, an area. 
And that is that is much, much different than it was 10 years ago. You know, you could finance the purchase and construction of an entire subdivision without taking too, too much money out of the company treasury. But now it's a much bigger number. And what all this expense seems to lead to, at least here in the greater Cincinnati area, is all the building that is being done is being done in move up and luxury homes, not in what we would call affordable homes, which is what people move out of, you know, if you're buying a brand new uh, in Cincinnati, it would be call it a hundred and seventy thousand dollar house. If you're mm-hmm. buying a brand new hundred and seventy thousand dollar house, that means you're moving out of your hundred and twenty thousand dollar house, which right. is is now ripe to become another rental property or first time home buyer property, something like that. And that's the that's the level that's that it's not moving around. You you don't go from a hundred and twenty thousand dollar house to a four hundred and fifty thousand dollar house. That jump doesn't happen right right and i think that that's you know that that um they sort of call it the peanut butter and caviar um you know that's all that's on the shelves is the really expensive stuff and the really really cheap stuff um there every market is going to be different and and for example in seattle one of the the gaps is condo condo development so that the, the people that are renting right now are looking at well, you, are you going to really move from paying even eighteen hundred dollars a month for a, a one-bedroom apartment and leap up to a seven hundred fifty thousand um, dollar mortgage? There's there's nothing in the middle, and, <clears throat> and again, that's because of the regulatory environment here makes it difficult for condos to be built because of the liability problems that we have in our um, in in our state law. And then you know you you can look across different um, different regions and different parts of the country, and every time you see those problems, you'll see either you know permitting times are slower, land's not available, the the kinds of t- things you talked about about the, the the cash requirements to go in, and so it just me- means that the production just doesn't happen, and so the price prices keep going up. And so when when you allow it, when you when you make an effort to incentivize that by by lowering the costs of the barriers to entry, you can see that those gaps get filled. But um, it's really within the power of of the regulators to let that happen. Um, if if there's demand and there's supply, um, or there is demand and the supply is not getting to that demand, and there's a market failure. It's almost always because there's a regulatory um, problem, and people are being prohibited from getting together in the marketplace to buy and sell what they want. We need to take another quick break. Again, I want to invite listener questions, comments, and stories. Askvina at gmail.com is one way to deliver those. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. You can also give us a call at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing, talking today to Roger Valdez from Seattle for Growth. And he's done a lot of research and a lot of work on uh, understanding the various uh, market forces that are actually causing house prices to go up and um, is a private property rights advocate at this point, and we all need to be private property rights advocates. Uh, Roger, I received an email. Uh, This is from uh, George in San Francisco, and it's more of a comment than anything else. 
He says, what I see happening in San Francisco is a huge gap developing between renters and owners. Owners want minimal development, low-density housing, and basically for the housing stock to be limited so that their property values are protected. Then they also want landlords to lower rent on scarce rental housing so that low-income people can afford them, but they don't want those low-income people living next door. It's NIMBY, not in my backyard, writ large. Yeah, that, that that sums it up. I mean, one of the one of the things I try to you know explain to people is that when you when a government um, overregulates the housing market, makes it difficult to build, um, that benefits folks that already have equity in existing single family homes. You know, so if you bought your house for two hundred fifty thousand dollars. And no additional housing is is built, but people keep moving into the area. You're going to see the value of that investment, you know, begin to, as they say, skyrocket. Um, so it's it's it, somehow there's a way that people inside their brain figure that out, and they understand that that additional supply um, has a, a an effect on their equity. On the other hand, um, what we've seen is is that most studies show that it, that increased supply. You know, if you build a new apartment building six blocks away from uh, a single-family neighborhood, it doesn't cause the property value of those uh, single-family housings to go down. It actually benefits long-term uh, value because it means there's more um, consumer demand for amenities. You know, stores, uh, shopping. Uh, retail outlets, all that sort of stuff, is is you know it causes those neighborhoods to flourish, which actually improves the value of, of property. So even though there are some downward pressures on on equity from increased supply, um, longer term, you know, the growth actually helps. But but that perception that the apartment is going to hurt my property value tends to drive that NIMBY instinct of don't build anything. And then, of course, people get angry because prices are going up, and then the answer becomes to tax and fee and fine the production of new housing to make it more difficult um, in order to get money to give to nonprofits to build, guess what, affordable housing. And so it's really this um, perpetual motion machine of, of, you know, we have a price problem, let's impose taxes, rules, fees, and regulations on existing housing, and the production of new housing, and then sit back and complain again about the prices going up. So um, this is just a problem that that's, has spread around the country and is, be, is reaching um, a, serious, uh, a serious level of, of uh, you may even call it a crisis, <laughs> but it's a crisis in regulation um, and prohibiting the ability of, of producers to meet buyers in the marketplace. Let's go to phones and talk to Vito on line one from Cleveland. Vito, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? I, interesting. I was doing well. I enjoy your show. Uh, quick comment regarding the crisis. Uh, it's interesting. You know, when prices go up, people start screaming about a crisis, but you don't hear that word when prices go down. There's no crisis there, and I find that rather interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I can tell you, you I was in a crisis in 2008 when I couldn't rent my house that used to rent for $1,200 a month for $900 a month, and I still had a $950 a month mortgage payment. That was a crisis. But yeah, you didn't hear the press screaming about it. Yeah, yeah, when when the prices go down, all of a sudden, well, you don't hear the word crisis, but only when the prices 
go up. And usually when you hear that word, that means somehow uh, the government uh, needs to be involved and make a change. So in other words, we have a situation that's abnormal. We need to do something quick because it's a crisis. But again, only when prices go up, not go down. And I, I find it rather interesting in how the media is sort of part of that whole conversation. Roger, any comment? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we, I remember back in the day when, when uh, they would do stories about landlords and, say, apartment buildings um, competing with each other, and they would have the, the poor landlords kind of saying, well, uh, I'm giving away two, two free months of rent, and then across the way there's another guy who's giving away a big screen TV or something to get people to move in. And those stories were always like on the bottom of the fold of the real estate section, right? And when yeah, no crisis when there. the story, right? When the story about the 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 lady who's disabled who is being you know moved out of her her apartment where she's lived for twenty years, I mean that's front page, you know that's that's the top of the the five o'clock news. So you know it's it, it just that's how it that's how it tends to work is that. You know the media um, tends to go where the fire is, and and they don't they don't really get too concerned when property owners are struggling well, to make their mortgage. Even if it's a small fire, they might tend to maybe make the fire a little bit bigger just to get the the attention. Also, one quick comment: it depends on which end of the of the pricing you're on. I mean, if, if you're selling your house from a, in a property area or, or selling your property and the prices are high, you're you're glad you got that built-in equity and you made a profit. But if you're buying into an area and the prices go up, then you might complain a little bit. But it kind of depends on which end of the spectrum you're on. Are you buying into it or are you getting out of it? You know, so, you know, what person, yeah. one person will hurt another. And it depends on, you know, which side you want to look at or which side you're on. So just want to make that comment. And thanks a lot for your show. I love it a lot. Thank you, Vito. Let's go to line two and talk to Eileen in Cincinnati. Eileen, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi. Um, anyway, the reason I'm calling is you were mentioning prices seem to be going up on rental. Um, I live near the Oakley area. I'm in Pleasant Ridge, actually. Right, hot area. And, oh, Oakley's, real hot area. Oakley's my very house hot. will never sell. It'll never sell for what they think it will sell for. That's <laughs> uh, all wrong. But anyway, um, I was looking on Facebook, and I saw one of these pop-ups come up for a new place over in Oakley, and I thought, ah, just check and see what the price is. Now, mind you, I've been in my house 25 years, so I haven't rented in 25 years. So I said, uh, so what's the cost for one bedroom? They said, $1,500. <laughs> what? And I said, let me ask you this. Is it non-smoking? Well, no. And I said, oh, well, my even my taxes aren't that bad a month. Mm-hmm. I think I'll stay where I am. I mean, I'll I was flabbergasted. Yes, yes. And, and Eileen, thank you for your call. Yeah, that's uh, uh, Oakley is one of our um, sort of hip up and coming areas. Lots of new stores, lots of new cafes, things like that. And uh, we've definitely seen prices in those little kind of microcosms go way up. But when you, when you then average it out and say, well, all of the rents have gone up to 15, you know, the, 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 in Oakley, they went from 950 to 1500. Well, you know, that's a giant leap, but that I'm not getting anything like as much more <laughs> for my properties that are more sort of low and middle income properties as those more luxury type properties there in uh, some of the hot areas. And it's just, you know, like Vito said, the market, the market does create winners and the winners are super happy about it. And then it mm-hmm. also creates folks who are sitting around going, I can't find a house that I can afford to buy, except that real estate is cyclical. And if we could get some more right. 
properties online. If there, if there were more new houses to choose from, there would be more old houses to choose from. So, Roger, the way the way a lot of people talk about this within the confines of our RIA groups is that the this this is all just leading to the government effectively taking private property, whether they actually get the deed in their name or not, when they control everything about how you're able to repair, change, use, rent your property, it's effectively a taking. Is is, is that paranoia? No, I, 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 I know it sounds like that when, when we talk about it amongst ourselves, and it certainly, I think, sounds that way. Um, it can sound that way to the media, but when you actually look at what the proposals are, um, you know, rental property is all, it's all about risk. And, and I think people inherently understand that, that if I borrow your car and, you know, uh, you're, you're taking a risk on me. And so the trying to mitigate that risk and leverage that risk is the reward part of, of doing rental property. And then the downside of it is, is, you know, you lose money if that, if that doesn't go well. Um, and you make a bad a bad decision on the front end. And what I what I think's really going on here is it's a it's a broader effort to turn housing into like a utility, um, where you you know you turn on the light and you you have a certain expectation that it's delivered to you in a price controlled way and everybody has access to it. Um, the problem is is housing doesn't work like that. And as I've said to our socialist council member when we've debated. Um, you can go ahead and take over all the rental property if you want, and and if you do that through seizure or condemnation or whatever, you know, regula- regulation, you're still going to have a lack of supply to meet the the demand. And so, what's going to happen is is you're going to have to ration this this uh, right that you're ascribing to housing. Um, and who's going to make the decision who gets their rationed housing first? And you're going to have long lines waiting for people to get government housing. And so, you know, that's where we're headed. Um, and I think that the real estate community across the country needs to begin to develop the intellectual um, capacity to push back on that, because I do think it's a real thing with Bernie Sanders running for president and um, a lot of other socialists kind of openly uh, claiming that they are socialists and that they're not worried about that and they think it's a good idea, um, you're going to see more and more of this pressure on on the real estate world, um, buying, selling, building, managing, and we need to begin to develop a strategy to push back on that and, and maintain what we have. Um, and make the argument that you know more housing is a good thing. If you're having a famine, people are starving. You don't go out and um, arrest the farmers. You you tell them make more, <laughs> and that's uh, that's what we need to to start to do across the country. Very true. And again, real estate investors are not especially organized it's it's like trying to herd cats to get them to all show mm-hmm. up at a meeting or you know because that's why do we get into real estate because we didn't want to have to do things that other people told us to do but we do have a uh, nationwide network of real estate investment associations who uh, have members who 
are affected by everything you've been talking about. Uh, quickly, what, what advice would you give to those associations about how to move forward and start to organize and get some of this data that, that you've talked about? Well, you're right. We need to we need to get more coherent in what we're what our messages are. Uh, we need to speak to people in language they understand. They understand supply and demand and fairness, and they understand efficiency. And I think they're they'll be on our side. But we just have to communicate more directly to people over um, a longer term and use facts and data more uh, effectively. And um, I think we need to develop a message that transforms the conversation from a crisis around price to a crisis around scarcity and uh, lack of production and lack of supply. And I think we can do it, but we need to, as you said, get more uh, coherent with the data and with the messaging. Excellent. And I look forward to talking to you personally about some ways to do that uh, in the future and getting that information out to the various real estate associations and their members over the course of the next few months. I very much appreciate your time today, Roger. This, I think this conversation was uh, very enlightening for a lot of people who might have been buying the story that the problem is greed. So appreciate yeah, you being thanks on Thanks for today. having me. I appreciate being on. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.